Welcome to the All Around Joe Podcast, where we optimize your human performance from my personal experience as an athlete, coach, and all-around self-improvement junkie. On this edition of the All Around Joe Podcast, I am talking with Jonathan Levitt about his rim-to-rim-to-rim Grand Canyon adventure. So if that in and of itself does not get you fired up to listen to this podcast, here's a little tidbit that he posted on his social media. Here we go. I conquered my fear of heights and running in the dark. The first five miles were pure terror as we descended in the dark around razor sharp switchbacks with massive drop-offs. My worst nightmare. A few hours later, dot, 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 I got happy legs at mile 28, and that lasted till around mile 35, which is beyond the distance I've ever run before, 50K. Starting up the trail, a seven-mile climb, 11 hours into the day was one of the hardest mental challenges on the whole day. So without further ado, well, with one more thing in mind, if you guys would like to get $200 off an Inside Tracker Ultimate package, you can do so by using the code Cheers All Around Joe. That's Cheers All Around Joe. We'll get you $200 off an Ultimate package at InsideTracker.com. This is one of the best deals of the year and it will last through the holiday. So, Go ahead and hurry over and get yourself $200 off. And now, without further ado, I am honored to have the pleasure of talking with Jonathan Levitt. Here we go. Jonathan, how's it going, man? It is going well. How about yourself? I am doing awesome. I am doing awesome. I am actually in Hawaii right now, and that doesn't even compare to how excited I am, though, to talk with you about your recent adventure. So, um, I'm excited for it. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Me too. Mostly because you know I want to hear how it went and hear your experience, and then maybe talk myself into doing it at some point. (laughs) um, Before we hop into the actual adventure, run, event, whatever we're going to call it. can you give us a little bit of background on who you are for people that have not heard sure. of you before? And, and before you get into that, if you guys want, you know, love this and want to get more information about Jonathan and what he's up to, head over to allaroundjoe.com slash 187, where we did a podcast all about what he's up to, his podcast, all that fun stuff. So Jonathan, let us know who you, who you are, man. Awesome. Um, thanks, Joe, for having me on again. Um, I am, my name is John. I live in Boston or my, at least my furniture lives in Boston. Uh, <laughs> I love to travel. I I'm headed to California next week and, uh, Austin the week after and Puerto Rico the following week. Uh, a couple weeks ago I was in, um, I was in the Canyon as we'll talk about. Um, I work at Inside Tracker and have the pleasure of working with athletes and non-athletes every day, uh, all about improving lives and, and performance and, and, you know, reaching for goals. Uh, that's my day-to-day work, which is awesome. And then I trail run, I road run, um, and I have my own podcast where I explore the why behind what keeps runners motivated and, and running long distances or short, fast distances and everything in between. Um, so it's fun. I, I, uh, I'm part of a coaching group called Some Work, All Play, 
uh, with David Roche and, and that's how I live my life. Very cool. Very cool. And for those of you guys that haven't subscribed to Jonathan's podcast already, you should. It's called For the Long Run. So make sure that you get up on that and uh, it will be in the show notes as well here uh, at 222 if you're looking for links afterwards. So I'm curious, Jonathan, because you do so much. Um, and just so you guys know, I didn't share any of the questions with Jonathan this time around. So he's he's just shooting from the hip here, which is awesome. I love it. My style. I love it. Yeah. So if somebody runs into you on the street or as quote unquote on the elevator, what is your pitch to them? Like, you know, you've got 30 seconds. How do you explain to them who you are or like the first time somebody meets you? Because you've got so much like this laundry list of cool things you're doing. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I I haven't found myself pitching myself on Shark Tank yet, so I haven't I haven't necessarily re- refined my personal elevator pitch. Um, but I've got the elevator pitch down for all the stuff that I do uh, individually. Um, short short explanation. Um, I love helping people get better. Um, I love the process of getting better. I love exploring boundaries and crushing them. Um, a lot of the stuff I've done in the last year. Um, a lot of it's been, a lot of it has been accomplishments or things that I, you know, five years ago would have not ever thought possible or even close to attainable. Um, and I just love the discovery process of reestablishing these normal, um, expectations or, or the process of reestablishing what normal is for an individual. That's really cool. So why did you have different expectations five years ago? I was really just getting into running and training uh, five years ago. I've, I've been running maybe for six years now. Um, and I didn't really know what was ahead. And I didn't know what might be possible. I didn't know that people ran more than a marathon. I didn't know that, you know, average people ran lots of marathons or, or ultras. I didn't even know what ultras were. Um, the concept of running across the Grand Canyon would have been you know, wild to me and, and running back would, would be even more wild. Um, so it's really, like I said, it's just like, I've gone down this rabbit hole of, um, you know, I have a lot of friends that have run a hundred miles a lot of times, uh, in a day or two days. And, um, it's, it's, you know, reestablishing these limits that we set for ourselves and really finding out what you're made of when, when shit hits the fan. I love it. It's so cool. You learn so much about yourself. Totally. It's awesome. So I can't wait any longer. Let's jump into the rim to rim to rim. How, actually, first of all, what, what is it? When someone says, you know, oh, you went to the Grand Canyon, did the rim to rim to rim. I mean, most people, when I bring it up, they're like, oh, the rim to rim. And I'm like, no, the rim <laughs> to rim to rim, yeah. and then you have to explain it to them. So like, how do you explain it to somebody? So 1% of the people that visit the Grand Canyon actually go beyond the rim. So they, 1% of people go more than, you know, 10 minutes into the canyon. And the Grand Canyon is so insanely large that you can't grasp how big it is until you get to the bottom. And I had been there before, and it basically looks like a green screen. It looks like art. And it doesn't look real. I'll tell you, by running 5,000 feet downhill over seven miles and finding yourself at the bottom, it, it becomes real. <laughs> and, <laughs> and 
it becomes real pretty quick. And um, the the gravity of of you know just how large it is really presents itself when when you're in there. Um, so what is rim to rim to rim? Rim to rim to rim is uh, starting from one side of the Grand Canyon and running across to the other side and then back. So, so opposite of trail running generally, uh, where you go up and then you go down when you're on a mountain with the Canyon, you go down and then you go up. So it's a false sense of security and a false sense of like, Oh, cool. I feel great because for every step you take at the beginning, it's two steps going back. And then you do that again. So the way it works is it's about, it's 40 plus miles, you know, between 42 and 50, depending on the route you take there and back. And most people don't do that entirely in the daylight. So you start super early and you finish before sunset or after sunset. So the first descent you do in the dark most of the time. And I'm afraid of heights and I don't like night running. <laughs> and so, so the experience of combining both of those was like, I just got the hard part out of the way right off the bat. Um, because you know, it's 5am it's dark and you got 45 miles ahead of you. It's time to go. Yep. Um, so we, we dropped in and I immediately lost the pack like right from the start. Um, there were 15 of us and I was like, I got to go real slow. <laughs> so I was, I was doing 20 minute downhill miles for the first seven miles or six and a half miles because I was just terrified uh, of, you know, so have you been in the Canyon? I've only been to the rim. Um, so I have not been down into it. So if you look at the trail, it's like, I don't know, three feet wide, three and a half feet wide. And there are spots where, you know, you're doing 180 degree turns and if you miss a turn, you're dead. Like you'll fall off and, and drop 500 to a thousand feet and that's it. <laughs> There's like no undo on that. Um, so it's these razor sharp switchbacks with massive drop offs as a way to get started. And so it was cool thinking, I, I very vividly remember thinking, you know, normally you get the stuff you're not looking forward to towards the end of a run and your flaws are exposed, your weaknesses are exposed, you know, in the third quarter, basically. Yep. Uh, my flaws and weaknesses were exposed right from the start. <laughs> and and it was super cool because I knew that once I got through that, um, the mental, the hardest mental part for me would be over or so I thought. Uh, but yeah, it was pretty wild to start. And that's a very long way to answer what is rim to rim to rim. Oh man. But it, it is, uh, it's cool. It's really interesting to, to have to face that. So like what happened then after, just cause I'm curious, like at what point were you going down and did you kind of like make amends with being okay and overcome that fear or did it take you to get through it at 20 minute miles? And then you started speeding up once you hit the bottom. Yeah, I didn't get through it until I got through it. Um, okay. It was just, it was just like, you're gonna deal with this, and there's no turning back. It's not an option. Uh, it literally wasn't because the car that dropped us off was driving to the north rim, so there was nobody there that could pick me up at at five a.m. And 
all my friends were ahead of me. So, so <laughs> I needed to keep going. And, um, it was very like primal. Like I had no other option besides continuing forward. Did you meditate? What did you do? I pretty much just prayed that I wouldn't fall off the cliff. Like okay. I sort of joke about that, but I was, it was like a very real concern that like I would blow a turn and fling myself right off. Um, no, I was, I knew that sunrise was coming. I knew that as I continued to descend, um, the switchbacks would get, would, would change and I'd eventually get to the river. And once you get to the river, it's flat or downhill or, you know, you could fall 10 feet and survive. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was like, it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced before in terms of like actually being scared. Cool. So let's paint the picture here. Was it pitch black and you had a headlamp on? So you just couldn't see where these cliffs were going kind of a thing. Yeah. So the wild part is we came back up that same trail and in the daylight. So about five o'clock. So we started at 5 a.m. And we came back up that climb starting at probably 3 p.m. And I said to my friend that I was with at the time, I was like, you know, thank God it was in the dark because I don't know that I would have gone down this had I been able to see it. So, yeah, we were using headlamps, but that's illuminating what's around you, um, but not what's a thousand feet below you. So for all I could for all I could see, um, I just had a trail that I had to follow. And that's really all that I did. Um, But then as the sun started to come up, you could see the um, you could see where you came from and how high it was. Right. Cool. Well, we're going to circle back to this, but I want to jump to what spark, what sparked you to get into this or to like think, I want to do this craziness. So we were talking about this. Um, My friend Tony is a good friend of mine who lives in San Francisco, and he's the one that organized this trip. And I had forgotten how this started, and he reminded me, because what he said was, I want to see national parks. <laughs> and I was like, oh, we should go to the Grand Canyon. And then we told the third person about this and they mentioned rim to rim. And then we told a fourth person and they mentioned rim to rim to rim. So we had this, we had this Google doc where people were inputting what they were going to do. So like <laughs> number of rims was a column. So two or three or six, nobody did six. Um, Two or three. So rim to rim or rim to rim to rim. Okay. Um, and I put two, I put two initially. So just rim to rim. And somewhere around May or June, after I had recovered from the marathon I did earlier in the year, I was thinking about it and I was like, I could comfortably go to the canyon tomorrow and do rim to rim. I probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> And I probably shouldn't commit to rim to rim or something that I'm comfortable with right now. So I mentioned it to my coach and he was like, adventures. Yes. Love it. Great. Um, in typical David Roche fashion, I support whatever you want to do as long as it's not (laughs) too stupid. Um, and I was like, let's do it. Like, I, I don't know what that's going to be like. I don't know if it's even attainable. So I put it in our, in my, uh, training log as a goal 
and didn't think much of it and sort of did it wrote it as a joke like not actually expecting that my training would allow me to do such a thing i don't know why i thought that but it would at that point and we talked about it on the podcast that i did with david sort of debriefing it from a functional and um um mental standpoint like it was so incomprehensible to me even in june to to consider running rim to rim to rim and that's why i chose to do it um because i wanted to see what would happen if i did something so outside of my wheelhouse and so outside of my comfort zone um and in a place where you really don't have an option to fail like failure in the grand canyon costs you fifteen thousand dollars and i say that because that's the only way there are two ways to get out you can run or hike or walk or you can take a fifteen thousand dollar helicopter ride (laughs) those are the only two options and you have to pick one so uh, it was again primal. Like we did this, we got into this. We have to get out of it. So at this point, had you done, or when you're having these thoughts, had you done your ultra? Yeah. So I had I had run a 50k in the fall prior. Um, so my longest time on feet was that day, and that was seven feet, seven hours, yep. and uh, we did that on Tahoe. So it was a lot of climbing. Um, and my, our time from the South rim to the North rim was just under seven hours. So I arrive at the North rim having already run basically my longest time on feet ever thinking that now I need to double that. And, and I remember the, like the, Oh shit moment of dropping back in on the North side after we had, you know, taken some time to refuel and rehydrate and eat some snacks and stuff. And I was like, man, this is about to get interesting. I don't know what's going to happen in these next, you know, five to eight hours. Um, and it was just this, like, this fear mixed with, like, pure stoke that it's like it was euphoric. And it was like a high that I had never felt before. Um, so we had a, we had a 17 people with us and one of them was, uh, or is a pro athlete. Uh, her name is Anna Mae Flynn. And so it was cool to have her around cause she had done the Canyon before she, she actually ran, uh, ran in it two days prior, uh, among other times. And she was the first person I saw when I climbed out of the North rim and she's standing there getting ready. She was running North to South. and she told me later, she's like, I had no clue what to expect from you. And when I saw her, like, I just started screaming. I was like, can we swear on this podcast? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. So my, my license plate on the car that we rented was, it started with LFG. So let's fucking go became like the, the anthem of the, of the trip. And so we see each other and we just start screaming this. (laughs) it's like in this like parking lot at 11 a.m on a saturday morning (laughs) with like kids and stuff around and all that i was just so fired up and i had been running for seven hours and i had it it was like nothing i had ever experienced before i was on a runner's high for for 10 hours and it just it was like 
like I said, it was like nothing I had ever experienced before because everything I was doing and every step I took was new territory and I felt so good. And that just kept me so fired up. So I want to jump back real quick to your thought process when you wrote down this, this goal and you'd mentioned that you weren't sure if it was humanly possible. What did you think would happen? And the reason that I'm asking this is because I'm sure that tons of people can relate. Yeah. So, so definitely humanly possible. I wasn't sure that, that I could be that human that did it. So when I put it on the calendar and David didn't say anything about it, I knew that he knew how to get me there. And I knew that if I just trusted his process and our process, that I'd be fine. And I knew that if it wasn't something that I should physically do this year, he would have told me and or he would have made some comment about like, oh, this is super awesome. Like maybe do this next year. Um, But he didn't. And so that gave me the confidence to get after it from a training perspective. And I had kept having breakthrough after breakthrough in training that just like kept me motivated to continue on. I ran a marathon by myself on a Saturday morning at like at a mountain in Massachusetts three weeks out of the Canyon. And it took five and a half hours. It was 5,000 feet of climbing. And I get to mile 22, mile 20. And I'm running by myself at this point. And I'm like, this is insane. Like I feel so good. And I was doing all this climbing and, and it wasn't an easy run by any means. And it was at that point when I hit that mile 20, actually it was when I hit mile 20, I was like, this, this Grand Canyon thing is, is going to happen. Um, I was like, if I feel this good four hours or four and a half hours into like a solo long run, I'd actually run 16 miles with a friend. But at this point I was solo. I was like, if I feel this, if I feel this good um, on just like a casual Saturday where I'm, you know, that, that was my second longest time on feet run ever um i was like if i feel this good like anything is possible with time um and and it was in that moment that i decided that you know this was probably gonna happen so let's dig into the training a little bit what did it look like leading up to that and even like if you've got to go back further to let us know how you built up your body to get it to be able to do the training go ahead and do that so i've been working with david now for like a year and a half um and it's been so i went through a marathon cycle with him in the spring and it was really just base building from january until march when or until like yeah, end of March when he was like, hey, you're pretty fit. Like, do you want to race a marathon? Um, so so we we had like a six-week marathon like specific cycle, but it was really just base building and, and putting in a lot of miles, um, non-specific training, just lots of aerobic time and speed work, um, lots of easy miles. And then I raced the marathon. I recovered super well from the marathon. Uh, I was running within three days, which I really don't, four days, which I really don't recommend unless, you know, you had a similar situation. I've taken 21 days off post-marathon before, Um, but I came out of this marathon and it was like a fitness bump. 
And I felt so good. And so I trained. I mean, I recovered. I went super easy for the next few weeks. But then I started doing some trail running. Um, and I was out in Boulder. I was in Tahoe. And the miles started picking up. And it got to a point where I was like casually running 60 mile weeks and not like in training 60 mile weeks. And it just like felt natural to click off 60 miles. But a year ago, 60 was my peak. And that I touched that probably a handful of times in the year. Um, so this past summer, I was probably averaging 66 to 68 miles a week. And I hit 70 and 72 and 73 a couple of times. So it was really just about building up as many miles as I can without doing too much. Um, I was going, I was doing like eight, eight easy on eight to 10 easy on Tuesday. Um, I do a workout with a double on Wednesday. So looking at it was between 10 and 13 miles in the morning and between three and six in the afternoon. Thursday was eight to 10. Friday was four or off. Saturday was started at 14 and then made its way up to the full marathon distance. And then Sunday was 10 to 13 with Monday being off. So that adds up quick. And yeah. I layered week after week of consistency, um, which enabled me to, you know, keep seeing these breakthroughs from a fitness standpoint. Um, I was crushing these workouts and I was going super slow on easy miles. Um, I started run commuting with coworkers. So they're getting a little speed work. I'm getting recovery, um, like talking nine minute miles, nine, 15 minute miles, um, which I would run Thursdays and Fridays. And I think that was huge. Like finally slowing down for my recovery runs has made a huge impact on being able to, you know, rip it when I want to. Um, I had a friend who po who tweeted today. She was like, uh, Keely Henninger, who's a elite uh, trail runner. And um, she tweeted that she had a friend that was, um, you know, creeping on her Strava and said, Keely, you're really slow, except when you want to be fast. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that is exactly it. So I'm running nine minute easy runs, but, I ran a marathon at a 650 pace. And so it's that major difference that like, this is the healthiest I've ever been. And this is the most fired up I've ever been. And the, like the stoke meter is a pretty good indicator of training status uh, in terms of, you know, you can look at test testosterone, but it's probably, you know, on the same scale. Like if you're fired up, and and you're excited to train it means you're recovering it means you're going easy when you need to go easy and it means you're gonna you're ready to perform when it's actually time to go hard um and so i also have data that shows that i'm trained well and recovered and my testosterone levels are great my cortisol is great inflammation all that um so i have the objective data to validate that this approach of lots and lots of easy miles and some fast miles is working really well for me. But then I also have that, you know, I just want to go like I'm ready. Let's go. 
and and that's a pretty good indicator of you know are you doing too much or are you in are you in the good zone um so yeah we just kept building um mile after mile and and layering these quality weeks on top of each other um then i spent 12 days in boulder and got some got the benefit of using the terrain out there as it should be used so david had this pretty awesome uh hill workout that he had me do up uh, mount sanitas if anyone's familiar with that and boulder offers this unique training ground where any type of workout you have there's a place and trail for that so we did this workout which was i think it was six by two minutes six by three minutes with three minutes recovery so two minutes on three minutes recovery but in the recovery i kept going uphill so it felt like doing 400s um because it it was the same output basically or same intended output but i was going 25 percent less distance and it was going uphill and then i continued going uphill on the recovery so you get to this you know summit and it's like you work so freaking hard to get up there so that was super cool so i had i had the benefit of training in boulder for 12 days i was out there for work um, but also lots of fun and podcast recording um so then I come back and I feel like a million bucks because I've been at 5,000 feet for two weeks doing most of my runs at above 7,300 feet. Um, so physically, I felt great. And then I jumped into the peak train or I, I came down for a week uh, in volume and then hit my two peak weeks or two highest weeks. And um, those went super well. And then I tapered and then hit the canyon. Wow. So you mentioned that you were tracking some data and your stoke meter. What exactly <laughs> does that entail for you? Because, you know, obviously you work for Inside Tracker and you can get all of that data. And I thought it was really interesting that you mentioned the stoke meter because I feel like it's really something that people, at least athletes that are trying to work really hard at something, don't pay enough attention to. Totally. But I'd love to hear about all the data points that you were tracking. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, there's the objective and there's, there's a subjective. Objectively, I'm using blood analysis to understand the impact of training and nutrition. And then it tells me exactly what to do. So are you training too hard? Are you not training enough? Are you missing supplements that you should be taking? Are there certain foods you should be eating? That's all, that's all of what Inside Tracker is telling. And so I'm looking at, specifically, I'm looking at testosterone, I'm looking at cortisol, I'm looking at inflammation, um, and some muscle damage markers, and then specific nutrient levels like vitamin D, magnesium, um, things like that that facilitate sleep and muscle repair and just feeling good in general. Um, so I can compare, I've been testing, or I'm working and testing at Inside Tracker for five years now. So I can compare in training versus another in training test and I can compare what feeling good looks like objectively to how I feel now and understand how to manipulate training or sleep or nutrition based on what the blood work is showing. And so at the core inside tracker tells you what to do from a, from a diet supplementation and lifestyle perspective. 
subjectively, if you wake up feeling good, that's great. Um, that's a that's a great indicator of for men testosterone levels. Um, it's a great indicator that you're not overtraining, and it's that's the that's the ideal. So I really became selfish with sleep over the last year, and so I'm putting in seventy mile weeks, but I'm sleeping eight and a half to nine hours a night, and I'm recovering, and I'm doing social things with friends, but I'm, you know, in bed at nine o'clock. Um, so that was a big shift. Um, and that's got me to where I am today. And I, I think that the, like, like you said, the stoke meter portion is, is overlooked. Like a lot of times people, I see it all the time on Twitter that people complain all the time about having to train. It's like, you don't have to train. You don't have to do that workout. Nobody is forcing you to do that. You chose to run New York City Marathon. You chose to run, you know, Boston Marathon. You chose to run Western States, whatever. Um, if you're loathing a workout, maybe take a step back and and think about why that is. Yeah. Um, life stress contributes to your lack of desire to train just like training stress does. So if you have the luxury of manipulating things in your life or changing around some variables in your life that contribute to being able to sleep more or, you know, so David follows his philosophy of um, you either run more or you sleep more. <laughs> and, and so you don't always need to go for that run. And so a lot of times people are waking up super early to to go for a run before a super important meeting. Yeah. But maybe on that day you should sleep in. Or maybe you don't need to go for your double. Or maybe you don't need to do this workout today, but instead you should run 30 minutes easy or 45 minutes easy instead of doing a 90 minute workout. Um and I think that having the grace and and um ability to change on the fly or deviate from the plan is uh powerful and empowering and allows you to continue to get better jesse thomas who's a pro triathlete and and um you know is the ceo of a, a major company picky bars um he had a line so he he trains a lot and works a lot he had a line about and i'll butcher the actual line but basically he said a plan is just a plan and you should be able to deviate from the plan. Um, again, we should probably look up the quote cause it's great. And that delivery wasn't, <laughs> but at the end of the day, like a plan is just a plan. Um, you don't have to follow it and it's good to not follow it sometimes when life comes up. And so that's the kind of grace I've given myself in the last year that has allowed me to, reached levels I've never reached before, both physically and professionally. Uh, we're doing things at Inside Tracker that, or I'm doing things at Inside Tracker I've never done before. Uh, we're doing things at Inside Tracker we've never done before. And um, it's a balance between trying to do it all, all the time. Like when I first started working, I would work till, you know, 11 p.m. every night because 
if you weren't working till 11 p.m., you were slacking. <laughs> um, and and that was just like my, that was what I thought. And everyone's got this fascination of being busy all the time. And so I've become selfish with my time because I know that if I am, I'm more productive. Yep. So, and I talked about this on another podcast, like <laughs> I literally work like mo- mountain time hours on the East Coast. I'll sleep later than most and start my run later than most and get into work later than most. But I know that because I do that, I'm more productive as a result and I can do the training. And I believe that, that my training allows me to be better at my job. So it's important for me to get the training in. It's important for me to get the work in. And I think that this flexibility, not flexibility, but this, um, yeah, maybe flexibility or, or, um, philosophy, maybe philosophy, I guess has, has been beneficial versus, you know, wasting my time, uh, and, and being irresponsible with time. Sure. I, yeah, I, I, I feel the same way and I feel like I've found something similar to what you're talking about with being, um, more deliberate in what I'm doing and not having to work as many hours and putting more time in or focus time into what I'm doing, not worrying about like what other people are thinking about, like you need to work 10 hours a day to run a business or what. Right. Exactly. Um, how many times or how often during your training cycle were you testing with inside tracker? And then how often were you test? Was it a daily stoke meter that you were looking for? (laughs) So with inside tracker, um, I think I tested in January uh, and then I probably test it right after, um, the Providence marathon, which was fascinating because like I said, I PR'd by 20 minutes and finally broke three for the first time ever. And something I was trying to do for four years. Um, and my results were great and I felt great. So, uh, I returned to running fairly quickly. Um, I tested again, uh, probably in August as training had picked up a little bit more. And then I tested again in September because I wanted to see the impact of altitude. Mm -hmm. And then I tested again after the canyon. I may have tested in October. It was either August. Yeah, it was August and October, um, I believe, early October or September. It was one of those two. Um, Basically an in-training test. And then I tested post-canyon. And after testing, after the Grand Canyon, it showed muscle damage at levels I'd never seen before. Uh, you can attribute that to the downhill running, 11,000 feet of downhill running. <laughs> um, and I was able to eat my way to recovery. So there, were, there are foods that you know, facilitate better levels of inflammation and um, I was doing all of that stuff and there were supplements you can take that were recommended to really expedite this process because um, I paced a half marathon last or this past weekend and that was a week or eight days after the canyon uh, and I felt I felt amazing um, and I was so fired up in the middle of that half marathon that I was like, I just want to rip a 5k right now. <laughs> so talk about the stoke meter. The stoke meter was high this past weekend. Um <laughs> And so I just, I took that as a great indicator of where I'm at because I've got a 50K coming up in a week and a half uh, and then I'll shut it down for the season. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I joke about this stoke meter. It's just like every so often I catch myself, you know, really hyped and like really excited to get out there for a long day or a big workout. Um, and I think it's just important to recognize those signs and like, and celebrate it. Like if you feel that good, great. <laughs> That's yeah. like, that should be celebrated. Um, and so it was super exciting to, uh, you know, continue to have that feeling, um, as the, as the year has gone on. Yeah. So how much do you attribute to feeling good this year or how much of, of feeling good this year do you attribute to having tested and knowing what your body needs in the past years? Yeah. So it's a, a lot. Um, it's been a long process to get to where I'm at. And I really started paying more attention to the inside tracker guidance maybe two and a half years ago. And things have, have been improving ever since then. Um, I've taken a greater emphasis. I put a greater emphasis on sleep. I have been eating more and um, working with a therapist. And that's been huge too. Um, so I think the combination of those, those three things has really allowed, um, allowed me to get the most out of the work that I'm putting in. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, at the start of 2018, maybe, I had a conversation with one of our dietitians. And she said, you're not eating enough, looking at some of the blood work. Um, it's a combination of the testosterone and cortisol and uh, lipids. And she said, add 5,000 5, calories, add 500 calories a day and see how you feel. And ever since then, I've like leveled up in terms of recovery and energy levels and i wasn't unintentionally fueling but i was probably running 50 miles a week at the time and not taking in enough for what i was putting out Mm -hmm. and so that was a very black and white shift where as soon as i started doing that i started feeling better so like i said maybe two and a half years ago or a year and a half ago um i got serious got more serious about it and I was like, what else can I do? What can like t- help me get the most out of this? Um, and that was a, that was a big change and it's definitely had a huge impact. Cool. Let's talk about the fueling for the run. Um, what did you fuel with? And then how did you determine at what intervals to take the fuel? Yeah. So that's a good question. There's something I was worried about basically how long could I continue to fuel? Um, so the morning of, I woke up at 4:15 and had a coffee and a picky bar and a stroop waffle, a goo stroop waffle. So it was only 300 calories to start the day. Um, and then in the bus ride or the car ride over, van ride over, we, um, I had another stroop waffle, uh, pretty much right before the start. So then we started, and about 45 minutes later, I had my first uh, gel of the day. And from that point on, literally every 30 minutes, I was having a gel. Um, and I had a mix of their uh, goose roctane, so more BCAAs, more sodium, uh, some caffeine. Um, so I probably had like 12 cups worth of co- uh, 12 cups of caffeine cups of coffee worth of caffeine in the day 
maybe that's why the Stokes was so high. <laughs> I was just uber caffeinated. But yeah. Um, yeah, so I was putting down 200 calories an hour from goo and drinking uh, hydration, drinking their electrolyte mix. Um, so I would pop four of those tablets into 60 ounces of water uh, and drink that every, finish that basically every seven miles. So I don't know, a couple hours. Um, and then I would take a salt tab every hour starting at the third hour. And on the North side, I drank a can of Coke. I had some pickles. I ate some chips and some blueberries, which somebody pointed out were a complete waste of space. <laughs> They're so <laughs> low in calories. Um, and a, uh, an Epic bar, uh, beef jerky stick. So, um, and then I had seven picky bars throughout the day. Um, like I said, five of them were during the run and two of them, one of them was at the beginning of the day. One of them was at the end of the day. Um, and so I think I, I consumed about 4,000 calories on the run, uh, which is a, my, my watch told me I, I burned 5,200 or something like that. So I feel like I did a decent job of like replenishing what I was burning. We ran for just under 13 hours. Um, and the, only time that I struggled was at hour 11 when I I was looking at this gel that was in my hand. I was like, I don't want to eat another damn thing. I I don't want to eat another one of these. And I was like, I'm screwed because I've got, you know, five uphill miles to go. So at that point, I just switched to um, their chews. I had been alternating between the waffles and the gels, but I hadn't really gotten into the chews yet. So you know, hour 11, you start eating candy and it's, <laughs> it's a game changer. Um, so yeah, so I, I basically, besides the 11 to 12 hour stretch, I had a gel, I had like two gels an hour, uh, or a gel and a waffle, um, every hour. And my energy levels were pretty consistent, uh, throughout as a result. Cool. So was that according to a plan or was that going off of feel? And then yeah, also before yeah, I- Yep. You that. And then also, why did you add the salt tabs? So, um, yes, that was a plan. Um, it's, I talked with their uh, sports nutrition team in the past, and that's what they suggest. Okay. Um, the salt, because I've had cramping issues before, and I really wanted to avoid that. Um, it wasn't as hot as I was expecting, but um, you're still sweating a ton. And um, I am a very salty sweater. So I finished runs and my face has been just like pure white from, from the salt. Yeah. Uh, it's really disgusting. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so I was trying to avoid that and I mostly did for the most part. Um, and I was glad I had the salt tabs because maybe at like mile 35, I passed this guy who was like struggling really hard. I didn't know who he was. Um, but I, started a conversation with him and he was like, yeah, man, I'm like cramping really hard. He's like, Hey, you want some salt tabs? He's like, there's nothing I would like more than some <laughs> salt tabs right now. So he, he, I gave him a couple. Um, so it was good to have those on board, but, um, yeah, it worked, worked really well. Cool. So what, how did you determine to have the salt tabs on top of the electrolytes? I'm just curious, like how that whole, cause you already, you mentioned you already taking electrolytes from the right. roctanes and then also in your pack, right. Or in your water yeah. source. Yeah. So may, maybe it was overkill. I don't 
I don't know. Um, it was something that had worked for me in the past. Okay. Um, and as, as I mentioned, I had spoken with a couple of dietitians about fueling and um, making a plan. So it was semi-educated and also it was, you know, half, half an educated decision, half experiential based um, knowing that, you know, on my five hour runs, this combination had worked. Um, whereas I had done four hour runs, uh, and didn't use, a didn't use salt tabs and, you know, maybe had some cramping, but, um, I also think that the training has an impact on the cramping and sure. often cramping So cramping can be fueling related, but it also can be, you know, exposing some sort of weakness or muscular weakness. Um, so I did a lot of hill training and I think that that also, um, helped on, on adventure day. Yeah, absolutely. How did you manage your water? So we went at a time when we got lucky because all of the options were water options were on. Um, as it gets colder, they freeze and break or they just break because they're super old pipes going into a Canyon that's rarely serviced. Um, so yeah, we had water at mile six and a half, probably mile eight, 12, 17, 22, and then the reverse. Wow. Uh, So we were pretty much really the only stretch where I carried more than that. The 60 ounces in the Nathan vest pack was um, when you climb. So there's a place called Phantom Ranch. So there are a bunch of, of campgrounds in the base of the canyon. And so you can stop at them and get fuel or um, there's one where you buy lemonade. That's the thing to do. But they all have water. Um, and so there's one called Phantom Ranch, which is six and a half miles from the south rim or seven miles from the south rim. And that's the first one you hit. And then that's the last one you hit if you go up the South Kaibab Trail. So there are two options out of the South Rim. You can go down Bright Angel, where there are water stops every three miles, or you can go South Kaibab, where the first water stop is about seven miles in. So everyone warns you that you must fill up at Phantom Ranch if you're going up South Kaibab, because that seven-mile climb can take you three hours or four hours or five hours, because you're going up 5,000 feet. Um, we moved at a 25-minute-mile pace. <laughs> To, get, to put it in context. Uh, and that was like, that was max effort. Um, so I carried 60 ounces in the pack. And then um, the vest I had, had two handheld, or not handheld, uh, two 12 ounce um, bottles on the front. So I carried, you know, that much water out because, you know, if you take four hours, you're going to need 80 ounces of water. Sure. Um, so I drank, I drank most of it, uh, cause the, the air is so dry and you, you just get, you know, cotton mouth and you just want to drink as much water as you can. And I did, and I was fortunate, but everyone warns you like carry as much as you possibly can out of Phantom Ranch. Um, so I carried these two bottles with me the whole time, but I didn't fill them up until that last water stop. Okay. Okay. So as you're heading up this last hill climb and you peak the top and you've made it, what's your body feel like at that point? Euphoria again. Um, 
So I felt good for 38 miles. And at mile 32 or 33, we were clipping off like seven and eight minute miles. Wow. And I was like, man, I was running with my friend Tony at the time. I was like, man, Tony, we're going to pay for this. And we did. <laughs> um, because those last seven miles are just brutal. And so when you ask, how did you feel climbing out? It was a mix of like, oh my God, that was the most physically taxing thing I've ever done. I think it was harder than running the marathon um, from a mental and physical standpoint. Um, people ask like, where, where did it set in that it was going to be difficult? Like, was it a mile into the climb? Was it two miles? It was like two strides into the climb. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm sort of backing up to paint the picture of like the, this euphoria of coming out of it. Um, so I took a video of myself at mile 34, basically thanking David for all the training and, and belief and all that stuff. I was on cloud nine. Tony was on cloud nine. Um, and we were just so, so hyped. Fast forward 10 miles. This is the worst I've ever felt running. And, <laughs> and okay, maybe not the worst. The second worst I've, I'd ever felt running. And so I, I look at these two videos back, back to back, separated by 10 miles. And it was fascinating because the first one was like as high as I possibly could be. And the second one was just about as low as I could possibly be. And I was talking to my phone, like basically to distract myself. But I was like, I was so happy I did it because I could, I can capture and, and play back this like, like when I'm at my, at my worst, what does it look like? And I was like, I was talking, I was saying to the, to, to the recording, I was like, there's no other option, but to keep going. That's it. That's it. Like that's, that's. But that's life. That's like, that's life. That's training. That's running. That's blah, blah, blah. You just got it. You just got to keep going. So I'm looking at this and I'm like, this is such shit in this moment. And I'm just going to put one foot in front of the other and just keep doing it for the next 5,000 feet of climbing. Um, so as you continue to climb, you start to see the, the rim and you can turn around and look at the sun setting. And I'll tell you the like the feeling of looking back and seeing where you've come since sunrise. I was just like, oh my god, we 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 came from there. We did that. Um, we haven't been here in ten hours, twelve hours. Um, so there's a there's a spot called Ua Point, which is about a mile from I think it's a mile from the from the South Rim up Kaibab, and it's called Ua Point because the view is incredible the sun was setting and i'm sure you, that was one of the photos you've seen and and it's just like it's it's at it was in that moment that that i said that i said to my friend tony and like we had run the last 22 miles together i was like tony we're doing it and we're about to we're about to do it it's about to be done um and this was the longest he'd ever run this is the longest a lot of us had ever run and we just kept going and we get out of the, this is my favorite part of all of it. We get out of the Canyon. We high five. There were three of us at this point. We high five, we do some screaming, blah, blah, blah. 
and then we're like, all right, man, it's cold up here. <laughs> like now what? Um, so we, we learned that there is a bus probably a few minutes away and we decided, okay, we got to take this bus. We don't have any cell coverage. We can't call our friends to say, Hey, come pick us up. Um, we had basically separated into a couple different packs. So some people had finished, some people were still out there. So the bus shows up, sun goes down, it's cold. We had been running for 13 hours. I was starving. I sit down, I open a picky bar on the bus. <laughs> bus I'm sitting right behind the bus driver. She turns around and goes, son, there's no eating on the bus. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, th- ma'am, thank you for, for driving us here. Um, you know, I've just been running for the last 45 miles. I'd like, I'm like really hungry. <laughs> she <laughs> just looks at me in the rear view mirror. Like there's no eating on the bus. <laughs> and it was like a per, it was so fucking perfect. It was like, it was like, nobody gives a shit. Nobody cares what you just did in the grand scheme of things. Like who cares? It's, it was this major accomplishment that, that we were so proud of, but the rest of the world just doesn't care. And, and it was, it was really cool to think about it in that way because like we, we set these like massive expectations for ourselves and we set these massive goals and people are really disappointed when they don't hit their goals. But at the end of the day, you're the only one that cares. (laughs) And, and I think that that just like that, that experience removed like tons and tons of pressure from me, like going forward because it's it's so personal and you know this bus driver couldn't care less that i had run 45 miles to that point and that i really just wanted to eat the picky bar i <laughs> ate the picky bar <laughs> good <laughs> you're like that what are you going like, to do kick me off let, the bus <laughs> yeah let me make this clear i ate the picky bar <laughs> because you know i was that hungry i just did it in a quiet way but no, at at the end of the day, it's like you're doing all this stuff for yourself and for the betterment of yourself and so that you can, you know, be better for those around you. But these massive goals that people set or these like risks that people take, you know, whatever, at the end of the day, like you just have to please yourself. Yeah. And and um you know, I say this all the time. The the um yeah, maybe it's related, maybe it's not. But, you know, when you get on an airplane and they say, put your mask on first before helping those around you. Like, at the end of the day, like, you can't help other people if you don't help yourself. So do these big, wild, awesome things and then just move on. Like, if if failures don't define you, then successes don't either. And so just take it as a learning experience, the whole thing. And And I thought... I thought that, that that experience of of her saying a second time, no eating on the bus was like the most perfect <laughs> summation of the whole day. <laughs> oh, I love it, man. And I, and I, I've got to say, though, I think that, you know, you doing things like this is a huge inspiration for people. So whether or not, you know, I, I get where you're coming from, but man, you've you're inspiring me right now to go out and do these things. So I appreciate that you're going and pushing these limits so that people like myself can, you know, run on, on your heels and, and try them after you've already shown us the way. Yeah. And I think that's the, like, at the end of the day, like, that's what it's all about. Um, 
I lost my grandfather this summer. And one of the things that he said to me before he passed was basically life is all about um, leaving the world a better place than you came in. And if you can do the basically exactly what you sh- like, exactly what you shared is like, that would make him so happy to hear you say that. Um, that's like what he lived for. Yeah. And, and that's, that's like what I live for. And like, there's no better compliment than something like that. Um, and I thought about him a lot on, on that run. And um, that's perfect. I, I don't have any more words than that. <laughs> Sorry. Well, it's all, it's all good. <laughs> keep, keep up, keep up the good work, man. Um, but to uh, break, break that a little bit, what was the first non-running meal you ate afterwards? Um, we went to, there's like a little village in the um, campground that we were in. And I ate, I think it was chicken and fish and potatoes and rice and vegetables. And um, it was delicious. <laughs> and then I didn't stop eating for like for hours. And I took snacks to bed with me. Nice. <laughs> I just kept eating. And I kept eating them because I couldn't fall asleep because I was so sore already. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we were camping, so I'm like laying on the cold ground or laying on the ground, just like thinking about how sore my quads already were. <laughs> oh, no, you camped after that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't recommend that at all. <laughs> oh, man, you should have let me know and I'd driven my van over. You could have slept on the bed <laughs> in the van. Yeah, there were 17 of us, so it would have been a little tight quarters, but at least it <laughs> stayed warm. Yeah. Um, then then we had some beers, and uh, everybody was drunk after a beer and a half, so it's pretty <laughs> I, funny. I, I, <laughs> we, had some, we had some support from Sufferfest, and, and they were, she was, my friend Margaret was like, yeah, you should have two to three beers for everyone, and we were like pretty good on the one and a half to, <laughs> to, to two yeah. beer range. But um, yeah, it was, it was super fun. We had you know a little campfire and all that stuff. And, uh, yeah, it was a really cool, really cool scene. Nice. So selfishly, and I'm guessing the other people would like to know this as well. You mentioned earlier that you had some foods and supplements that you took in order to repair your muscles faster. And I know that like, ideally we'd like everybody to go out and test inside tracker. So they absolutely should. And I recommend it to everybody, but do you have any of these hacks that you could share that worked for you? Yeah. So, uh, we'll start with food. So, um, Brazil nuts are sort of a miracle recovery food. I learned this while sitting in on a call with one of our dietitians and one of our athletes. Um, I guess two nuts have the uh, RDA of selenium, which is an essential nutrient for muscle repair and muscle recovery. Um, so was eating those all week. Uh, fish and um, other you know, olive oil and other healthy fats and things like that. Um, it was a great excuse to have sushi twice that week. Uh, so I definitely did that. Avocado is another good food. And then getting into the supplements, um, magnesium, again, to help with muscle repair. Um, I knew my vitamin D level was fine, so that's helping as well. Um, and then two that I hadn't taken before that popped up as recommendations were CoQ10, ALA, which I which I couldn't find, 
Um, and uh, what's the other one? Kirk, uh, curcumin. Mm-hmm. Um, so I took the curcumin, or I've been taking the curcumin and the CoQ10 um, to address the super high levels of HSCRP, which is uh, inflammation, and the elevated liver enzymes. And same thing with, um, I've been taking a probiotic as well. Um, so yeah, so that sort of cocktail of foods and supplements have left me feeling good. And I did my first workout today. Um, and it was pretty similar in terms of paces to, a, uh, an easier version of what I did, um, 10 days out from the Canyon. So David has me do a hard workout or the hardest workout 10 days out of, you know, race day or whatever day. Um, so it's cool to compare that to a harder version today and see similar paces. So I know, I know it worked, uh, cause I feel good. Um, and I'm able to perform as well. Uh, and the stoke is super high. <laughs> Most <laughs> <Yeah>. importantly. <laughs> oh man, absolutely. I think the stoke meter is probably really important after a big event like that. Yeah, you could just sure. feel trashed if. Yes. Well, I sure did. I certainly did feel trashed. Uh, it was definitely a fun experience to drive for four hours and then fly for five. But um, yeah, the recovery has gone really well. Cool. Is there anything that you would change if you did it again? Yeah, I wouldn't camp. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah I, I mean we got pretty lucky for with having somebody meet us at the north side um it's a 220 mile drive or a 22 mile run 21 mile run wow. so it takes roughly the same amount of time to get from side to side so you have to have like a really awesome friend who's willing to do something like that you know basically drive for 10 to 12 hours that day um I really think the only thing I would do differently besides putting horse blinders on for the first seven miles would be not camping the night after or the night before. Um, yeah, I think that's it. It was like pretty ideal otherwise. Did you camp the night before too? Yeah. Oh, man. It was. This is embarrassing. It was my first time ever camping. Really? Yeah. <laughs> huh. Well, I mean, uh, sleeping on the ground, did you have a good sleeping pad at least? The sleeping pad was great, but I'm such a rookie that I slept, um, like it, it wasn't flat and I slept the wrong way. And then I was in a tent with a friend and I didn't want to wake him up. So (laughs) I didn't change it. Uh, (laughs) so I just slept like with all the blood pooled in my head the first night. (laughs) Uh, yep. Yep. I wouldn't do that. Right. So for all of you guys listening that haven't, you know, slept in a tent before, you want your head uphill if you are on a yeah, slope. Yeah, didn't, didn't do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm tired. <laughs> yep. Or if you're in an RV or sleeping in a car, that also applies. But uh, Yes. <laughs> or a bed. Or, yeah, there you go. Yeah, or if, if your bed is... you got an insane slope to your apartment, you never know. You d- Yeah, you do never know. You should move, um, so... Well, Jonathan, this has been fantastic. Is there anything that uh, that you think that you should cover before we go that we haven't really talked about? No, I think that, um, I think that like the message that I just want to get out is like, do things that scare you and do them. It's better with friends <laughs> So do things that scare you with friends. Oh man, I love it. And I appreciate the time. Where can people find more about you, follow you, subscribe to your podcast, all that stuff. 
So I'm JW Levitt, L-E-V-I-T-T on Instagram and Twitter. Um, the podcast is called For the Long Run. Um, and it's available on Apple, Spotify, basically anywhere you find podcasts or listen to. Cool. Well, man, I appreciate your time. I'm sure we'll have you on again and uh, keep doing awesome stuff and we'll keep following it and I'll keep being inspired and, and try and do it as well. Awesome. Thanks so much, Joe. You bet, man. We'll talk soon. Hey guys, that was my interview of Jonathan Levitt on the Rim to Rim to Rim Grand Canyon Adventure Trail Run. If that doesn't get you fired up to go out and do some crazy stuff, I don't know what does because every time that I hear a story like that, I get fired up to go and do something just like it. And I've got to say that Rim to Rim to Rim has definitely been added to my list of runs slash adventures that I am going to do for sure. So I've got to thank Jonathan for going out and doing it, setting up, you know, the the excitement around it and accomplishing things so that he can inspire people like myself and people like you that are listening and watching this to go out and do some really cool things. So I highly recommend that you follow Jonathan on social media and check out his podcast for the long run. It's excellent stuff. And remember, if you would like to get yourself $200 off an Inside Tracker Ultimate test, which is the test that we do regularly, now's the time. All you have to do is go to insidetracker.com and use the code Cheers all around Joe. That's no spaces, one word, cheers all around Joe. And you will get yourself $200 off an Inside Tracker Ultimate Package. It is something that you know you all should be doing if you haven't got that from listening to the podcast already. So if you guys have any questions, if you need anything, let me know. Make sure that you hit the subscribe button if you're watching this on. YouTube or iTunes or your favorite podcasting station. And if you like this podcast, we would love it if you would give us a review. We're getting ourselves so close to 100 five-star reviews. And we would love it if you would help contribute to that number. So like I said, if you need anything, I'm here for you. And I will talk to you soon. The All Around Joe Podcast, where we optimize your human performance for my personal experience as an athlete, coach, and all around self-doing job. I will see you.